This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll ask what's next for Catalonia after Sunday's election, when separatist parties won a majority of seats in the regional parliament. But we begin with Syria and the promise of a dramatic shift in international diplomacy on display at the United Nations General Assembly in New York this week. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and US President Barack Obama struck sharply different tones, with Mr Putin calling on the West to join forces with Syria's President Bashar al-Assad in the fight against the so-called Islamic State. Mr Obama described Mr Assad as a tyrant who drops barrel bombs on innocent children who had no place in Syria's future. Despite the apparent conflict, however, there's an emerging international consensus around allowing Mr. Assad to stay in power during a political transition, although Western governments want him to be gone by the end of it. So are we actually on the verge of a diplomatic breakthrough that could end Syria's brutal four-year civil war? To discuss this, I'm joined from Moscow by our correspondent Isabel Gorst, from Nicosia by our Middle East analyst Michael Jansen, and here in Dublin by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Isabel Gorst, can I start with you and perhaps you can just tell us something about what has been happening where Russia's policy in Syria is concerned. Uh, Mr. Putin's speech came uh, after a, a number of weeks where we've seen this big military build-up of Russian forces in Syria. Yes, we've seen very, very big build-up in Russian forces in Syria starting, starting in August. Russia traditionally has supported the Assad family for many years in Syria, and has always been a weapons supplier to Syria. But since August, they've stepped up military supplies and, and, and have beefed up their presence at a military base at Latakia and around Tartus, where Russia has a military port, naval port, which is very important to the country's strategic interests in the Mediterranean, of course. I, I think this, this military support has, has took, took the U.S. and Europe by surprise, um, simply because it was so large and very, very unexpected. And I think it demonstrates that Russia is determined to hang on to its interests in Syria, its military interests in Syria. They're strategically vitally important to Russia. And whatever happens to the Assad regime in the end or to the country, they want to ensure that they still have a strong military base in that area. And so, Isabel, if we're looking at uh, Russia's actions from the point of view of Russia's national interests, are we speaking mainly about the strategic interest in the, that Russia has in the region? Uh, and to what extent is uh, Mr. Putin's rhetoric about the danger of Islamic ex- extremism within Russia uh, something of a sideshow? Well, I think there are two things going on. I think probably the most important is Russia's just strategic interests in the Near East, and that port on the Mediterranean is seen as critical, Tartus. Putin also does not tend to, tends to be loyal. He does not want to give up on Assad. He doesn't approve of what he sees as American-driven plans to change regimes. He thinks he refers constantly to the uh, Arab Spring, which has led to big instability in Egypt, Libya, 
countries. He, 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 he thinks the regime should not be overthrown illegally and that one should work with the, with, with existing governments. Um, I think also Putin said a very important thing when he was speaking on CBS network before the UN, UN meeting. He said it's better to fight um, the Islamic State terrorists in Syria and Iraq than to have them come to Russia and disrupt disrupt life in our own country. I think I think he's seriously concerned by the risk, um, which is in fact a real risk, that Islamist religious extremism will spread to Russia and to Russia's allies in Central Asia. So to, to, to keep the conflict in the Near East, fight them on their own ground. Isabel, some uh, analysts and some politicians in uh, Western Europe and in the United States have suggested that part of Mr. Putin's game, in a sense, is that he's trying to bring himself back in from the cold because of all of the odium that is attached to him over his actions in Ukraine, and that all of this is partly a stratagem to uh, persuade the West to lift its sanctions against Russia. I think there's certainly an element of that going on. And the very fact that Putin, it was the first time he'd addressed the UN General Assembly in 10 years, and he had one-on-one um, -on -one talks with Obama after the meeting, which no one really expected that would happen until the last minute, because the US has been against having a meeting with Putin. I think that it was a big, a big success story for him, for his domestic, domestic politics. He can show that Russia is no longer so isolated internationally, that Russia's a strong country and that it's, the U.S. has to reckon with Russia in international affairs. I think there's certainly a side to that. Michael Jansen, uh, how important and significant is what we're seeing diplomatically in terms of shifts uh, in Western opinion and in uh, the role of Russia in the region? Well, I think in terms of Western opinion, it is important to note that uh, most of the major Western powers have come to the understanding that um, Assad has to stay in power. If the institutions, and the, particularly the army in Syria, are to remain uh, viable, uh, without Assad, I think the institutions would dissolve, as they did in Iraq after the U.S. invasion and occupation. Um, so... I think the Western powers have come to realize that they have to at least tolerate Assad for some time. Uh, Michael, months, I, as I mentioned, even years. as I mentioned, Michael, uh, President Obama described Mr. Assad as a tyrant who drops barrel bombs on innocent children, and it's also, of course true, isn't it, that uh, Mr. Assad has been responsible for killing far more Syrians than uh, the so-called Islamic State have? It is true that he has killed uh, more Syrians than the Islamic State, but one mustn't also take it, you know, one has to take into consideration that the other guys are also killing Syrians, and that uh, out of the 200,000 or more Syrians who have been killed, um, at least 40% are probably either members of the army or the different militias, including the pro-government militia and the uh, anti-government militias. So it's not just the Islamic State that is a problem. There are a whole range of militias, hundreds of them, in fact. But, uh, but, also, uh, which, but also, Michael, presumably we don't agree, all of us, that Mr. Assad's conduct of the war has also been a major problem. 
Yes, it has been. Uh, his conduct of the war has uh, been very uh, expensive in terms of lives. Um, and also he, has, he did not handle the initial demonstrations in 2011 in such a way as to prevent escalation into violence. Uh, but there were plenty of people outside uh, Syria at that time who were willing to fund and arm uh, dissident groups and dissident leaders who thought they could benefit from opposing uh, Assad. And this is what happened. The first weapons came in in 2011 from Lebanon, in fact. Um, so there was a major difference between what happened in Syria and what happened in Egypt. In Egypt, you had a genuine national uprising which uh, brought in all levels of society, whereas in Syria, you had actually an, an uprising which was for a very short time uh, sort of modeled on the Egyptian uh, scenario, but then it very soon and, and that is within weeks or within even days, it degenerated into armed uh, action uh, Michael, Michael uh, if we uh, now say that the, the Western powers and this international consensus agrees that Mr. Assad should probably stay in power during a transitional period and this political transition, what reason do we have to believe that he will still that he'll actually be gone by the end of it? Well, first of all, one has to finish off the war. I mean, there's no point in talking about a political transition while there is a war to fight. And I think that the Russians are right, that the war has to be addressed first. And this is also the Iranian position. Um, because unless the war is addressed, then you cannot have changes in the government. As I said earlier, the institutions of government in Syria must be preserved if you are not going to have a collapse, uh, like the collapse in Libya and the collapse in Iraq. Uh, this is what the Russians want to avoid, and I, I think on that they are right. Um, whether they will stick with Assad after the war ends and then there are negotiations and a political transition is, uh, is effected, I don't know. Uh, they may well abandon him. Uh, uh, but they said, they have said, and Putin said yesterday, that the Syrian people have to choose the leaders they want, not the foreign powers. Paddy Smith, are we watching the collapse of Western policy towards Syria? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, on the contrary, what we're seeing is the emergence of, of a new um, uh, coherence in terms of... of uh, uh, strategic outlook. We're starting with the situation where Assad remains in power and the, the Western powers to differing degrees are saying, well, by the end of it, whatever happens, whether it's by agreement or, or by inevitability, uh, Assad will be gone. And so well, you, you see a range of views expressed by, by Western powers. You, Merkel and, and Cameron, for example, have been quite explicit in saying maybe we should, you know, we can work with Assad. We, we'll do that. The French, the Saudis, the Turks are saying Assad must, must go. Well, there must be a clear commitment to, to Assad going. And the Americans are saying more or less the same. So there is a sort of spectrum of views. But at the end of the day, there's a sort of dance, diplomatic dance going on at the United Nations. And I actually don't believe that what 
um, Obama and Putin are saying is all that different in, in, in material terms. We will end up, and we've already got it, with a military cooperation between the Americans and the Russians in, in Syria to take on uh, IS. What what we don't have yet is is clarity about the shape of of an alliance, whether how formal or informal that's going to be. Already Putin and has got himself a sort of semi-formal alliance with uh, with the Iraqis and the and the Iranians on on uh, the ground in Syria how how the British the Americans are drawn into that is yet to be seen but we're heading in the same direction we are uh, maybe heading in the same direction now but this is actually turning the previous western policy on its head western policy was to remove President Assad from power to back this whole series of rebel forces that were whose sole purpose was to remove President Assad from power. Now what we're saying is that for the time being, President Assad should stay in power, and that and if the West is in alliance with Russia, it is also effectively in alliance with Mr. Assad. Yeah, I think there's been a reversal of policy, but I wouldn't describe that as a sort of collapse in 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 in, uh, in uh, the, the the Western strategic position. And how much leverage would the United States have in the region now in comparison, say, with Russia? Well, uh, the, the, the Americans are, are, are a military power. They have planes bombing uh, IS uh, bases, and they are strategically important to, to the success of this, this operation. So I think what we see is, is quiet influence um, in the shaping of, of, of this process. But I don't think... Um, I don't think it's leverage in a traditional sense. Is there something distasteful about this, Paddy, if you think about what we know about the atrocities committed by President Assad, what we know uh, about the, the fate of so many people who uh, have had to flee, uh, the, the conditions he has created there, that uh, once again, uh, for reasons perhaps of realpolitik that uh, uh, Western leaders are finding themselves doing a deal with the devil. Well, that's that's what it is, to deal with the devil. But I don't think there's an alternative. I mean, the council of despair, of, of, of inertia, is the alternative. You do nothing. You, you stand back and say nothing can, can happen. Now, that's something that clearly the Western powers have said. We can't stand back because this is actually impinging directly on us. The whole refugee thing demands that we get involved in, in a uh, diplomatic solution in, uh, in Syria. And yes, it is very unpleasant. It's very, very difficult. But I don't actually think there is any alternative. Isabel Gorst, uh, is, there, is there a danger for President Putin in all of this, insofar as uh, the Russian people have been, in recent decades, quite uh, wary of foreign military adventures? And uh, does Mr. Putin have to be careful about how far he actually uh, wades into this conflict in Syria? I think Putin has to be very, very careful. I mean, he said in when he was in New York that he didn't want to, he didn't want, he was building up military support and supplying more weaponry to Syria, but he did not want to put boots on the ground and enter into direct combat. And then, of course, the U.S. doesn't want to get directly involved on the ground and sticking to airstrikes. So in the same position in that way, that uh, there's certainly no, no appetite in Russia for, for a, a war. There was a poll came out this week saying, I think two-thirds said that they were against any kind of military involvement in Syria. So he has to be careful about that. Um, Michael Johnson, finally, if I may ask you, 
If we look ahead to the next few months, and if indeed, as uh, as Paddy suggested, that we actually are uh, watching these uh, the great powers aligning and coming into line and forming uh, what could be an a, an effective military alliance, also with Assad, how do we see the, the the next few months unfolding with regard to the war in Syria? Well, if the Western powers. Uh, put pressure on the Saudis, the Qataris, and the Turks to stop their uh, arming and financing of Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and other similar groups in Syria, that will be the first step at curbing these groups' power in Syria and also in Iraq. So that has to be a first step. Now, the most difficult people to attack, to tackle on this issue, I think, will be the Saudis. Uh, because they have committed themselves to these groups because they feel that they are battling for regional influence with Iran. And they don't want to be in the same um, camp as the Iranians because the Iranians are in the Assad camp. Um, the, I think the Saudis need to be persuaded that either they should take hands-off position or they should... Um, at least reduce whatever they have been sending to these groups. Um, then I think they will. The Americans and the others will probably step up some kind of uh, military confrontation uh, through their bombing campaigns. But the bombing campaigns so far have not been very effective. Uh, so the, if they are going to be uh, serious about uh, hitting these uh, groups that they want to remove. They have to both step up this and apply other pressure. And that, that is where, of course, the Saudis, the Qataris, and so on uh, are involved. And um, then if the Syrian army is able to improve its situation uh, on the ground in Syria, um, the bombing campaign will be more and more effective. Uh, ultimately, uh, the Islamic State people can be rolled back, particularly along the Turkish border, uh, especially if the Turks seal the border and don't allow things in, allow arms and money in, and fighters as well. And um, these groups can be squeezed and the Syrian army needs to be bolstered with weapons, which is what the Russians are doing. And the Iranians are also doing the same thing and providing um, support uh, as far as advice is concerned. The Iranians, the Syrians, and the Russians are also working with the Iraqis to do the same thing, to provide, first of all, or to coordinate on information and to provide aid for the Iraqi forces fighting Islamic State, because this fight is not simply in one country, it's in two, and it has to be tackled in both countries, and these groups have to be squeezed in both countries. So far, the Iraqi army has been stalled outside this town called Ramadi, west of Baghdad, for many weeks now, and something has to be done to get the Iraqi army moving. 
to um, turf Islamic State people out of that town and then to move north to Fallujah and do the same. Michael Jansen, Isabel Gorst and Patrick Smith, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. On Sunday, parties supporting Catalan independence won a majority of seats in the regional parliament. Catalonia's Prime Minister, Artur Mas, has promised to implement a roadmap that could see the region break away from Spain within 18 months. Spain's Conservative Prime Minister, Mariano Rajoy, says that he'll listen to the new Catalan government, but he's ruled out any discussion of independence. So what does the election result mean, and can Mr. Mass implement his roadmap for independence? I'm joined from Madrid by our correspondent Guy Hedgeco, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio in Dublin. Guy, can we talk first about the election itself? Now, the uh, separatist parties won a majority of seats, but they didn't win a majority of votes. That's right, and there's been a lot of focus on that fact. Um, they, they won overall um, 60, um, so 62 seats for the, the main coalition, which was supporting independence. And then there are another 10 seats from a smaller pro-independence party called the CUP. Together they can form uh, a majority in the Catalan parliament. But people have pointed out that together they don't get more than 50% of the, uh, the popular vote. They're somewhere around 48%. Um, having said that, the, the pro-independence parties had said before the election that their aim was to get a majority of seats um, regardless of the vote. And they, they said that even though they were using this as a plebiscite on independence, um, they were going to look at the, the seats rather than the votes because they were working within the framework of a formal uh, regional election rather than uh, a formal referendum. So what happens now? Well, that's a big question. I mean, right now, the, the pro-independence parties are sort of locked in talks uh, amongst themselves to try and work out how they're going to form a new regional government in Catalonia, and most importantly of all, how, um, who is going to lead that regional government. Um, the big question is whether it's going to be Artur Mas, uh, the man who is the regional leader at the moment, um, and who has been sort of the figurehead of the independence movement, really since it, it started in earnest in 2012. Um, there's a lot of pressure on him uh, from some quarters to step down. Now, that, that party I mentioned, the CUP, who are the sort of smaller uh, pro-independence party, who uh, have those 10 seats, which are crucial if Artur Mas and his allies want to get the, the majority uh, in, the, in the Catalan parliament. They're saying they don't want to back Artur Mas, they want someone else to lead the whole process because they say he has been too, much, too tainted, he and his party, um, the Convergence Party, have been too tainted by corruption. Um, he has implemented a lot of uh, spending cuts across the region and those are very much opposed to the leftist ideology of the CUP. So, as you can see, it's very complex because there are a lot of different ideologies trying to work together here from the left, from the center, from the right, that the only thing that unites them is that they want independence. But politically, they don't agree on many things. And the route to uh, 
independence is obviously very complicated too. And uh, as I mentioned, Mariano Rajoy, uh, the Spanish prime minister, said that although he'll listen to them, he's not going to talk about uh, independence. And he claims that any attempt at a referendum is illegal. And indeed, Mr. Mass has been indicted for holding a kind of a plebiscite on independence a few months ago. So how, does, how do we actually navigate the path to, uh, to a proper referendum on Catalan independence? Well, I mean, I think the answer is there isn't going to be a referendum that's negotiated with the Spanish government under current circumstances. You know, something like the, the Scottish referendum last year, that's something that um, Artur Mas and the pro-independence camp have been calling for for, for a long time. They, they've uh, given Scotland as, a, as the example of, of democracy in action. And they said, why can't we do something like that? Um, well, the, the answer from Madrid is that it's not in the Constitution. It would be illegal and so on. Um, but, so, I, I mean, that, that, that's the argument of Madrid ag- against holding such a referendum. And it looks like that's not going to change. Um, the, the central government has been very rigid um, in opposing any move towards independence or any move towards increased autonomy for Catalonia. And I think that's not going to change over the coming months, especially with general elections coming up in December. Um, There's a feeling that um, for Mariano Rajoy, the prime minister, he's worried about losing his voters on the right if he were to give any grounds towards the pro-independence camp by, for example, offering them more autonomy or more control over their finances or uh, particularly by offering them a referendum on independence. So I don't think that would happen under this particular government in Madrid. And what about the other parties in Madrid, the Socialist Party and Podemos, for example? Well, they, they've taken some varying stances, uh, stances that differ from the, the central government. Uh, the Socialists uh, are talking about what they call a, a third way, which is um, it's, it doesn't go as far as full independence, um, but it's, it's not as rigid as the stance of the central government. Um, it would introduce increased powers for Catalonia um, and for other regions, other Spain's 17 different regions as well. But it would sort of re, uh, revise the, uh, the, the arrangement for all these different regions, um, and in particular for Catalonia, giving it more control, for example, over its finances, over its uh, taxes. Um, and the taxes is a big issue at the moment. That's one of the big complaints of Catalans, that they're not allowed to control their own tax revenue. They have to send most of it back to Madrid. Uh, Madrid then decides how it's distributed around Spain. Um, so that's the, the socialists. The, uh, Podemos, the anti-austerity party, um, they've been in a difficult situation. They formed a, uh, a new coalition in Catalonia specifically for these elections uh, with the uh, eco-socialists um, up in Catalonia. Um, and they, they formed this new brand name, Catalonia Seekers Pot, Catalonia Yes We Can. And it's been difficult for Podemos to really carve out their own identity in Catalonia. The, the line they've taken has been that they don't uh, back independence uh, fully, um, or certainly they, they don't uh, think it's a good idea for Spain overall, but they haven't been sort of completely convincing with that message. And at the same time, they're saying there should be some kind of negotiated referendum. Um, there should be talks between Barcelona and Madrid on either a referendum or increased powers. But it has been difficult for them to sort of carve out a clear identity in Catalonia. 
Patty Smith, uh, the, the Catalan independence movement is one of uh, a number of strong separatist movements around Europe, uh, including, as Guy mentioned, Scotland. How will this uh, election result be perceived uh, outside Spain and around Europe, do you think? Well, I, I think there'll be some relief that they, they didn't get an absolute majority. But the pressure will remain uh, in inside uh, uh, Spain uh, for for a proper referendum, and and if you look at the uh, uh, the situation five years ago, the the vote for Catalan independence was running at about twenty five percent, and it's now it's now doubled, in the, in, and it's unlikely that that the direction that that's going in is going to be uh, is going to be changed. The the European Union um, has a, a a serious problem with uh, Catalan independence. Uh, not least because Spain would have a complete veto on the admission of of, of Catalonia, and uh, and and if if Spain was not recognising a new Cat- Catalonian state, uh, they would veto and they would block any possibility. Uh, and so, no matter how sympathetic other countries might be, uh, there is no possibility that Catalonia would be admitted uh, as an independent state to the European Union. In fact, it would continue to be represented in Brussels by Madrid, even if it. It got involved in a unilateral declaration of independence. It, if it, there was talk of of setting up its own institutions, its own foreign ministry, its own central bank, and the like, even if it went down that road, it would find itself blocked completely when it came to to EU uh, membership. And of course, there are other member states uh, which which will not be pleased to see uh, the strengthening of the Catalan uh, independence vote because they have their own uh, independence movements who will take heart from from that. Um, the critical thing, of course, uh, in, in terms of the difference with Scotland is that the, the Scottish uh, referendum was held with the permission of the British authorities and therefore the uh, the possibility of, of secession uh, was, was one that was sanctioned, if you like, by the, the former state in Spain. That was not going to be the case. So it, it was actually quite different from, from uh, the Scottish vote in, in legal terms in, in, in Europe. And across Europe, how effective are these uh, separatist movements in encouraging each other with their various successes? It's not. It's not uh, huge. I mean, the the, the reality is that uh, the Catalan and Basque nationalist movements are, are probably the strongest, uh, 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 as well as the the Scots. And elsewhere, in 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 say France or in Italy or in in uh, other parts of of. Uh, Europe, they are much, much less significant as, as a political force. In, in in Italy, for example, the, the idea of Padania, the northern part of the country breaking away, it's really had its day and it seems to have, have faded. It's still, the Northern League is still a political force, but I think people don't realistically see any possibility of, 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 of uh, independence. Uh, Guy, finally, if we go back to Mr. Mass's uh, uh, roadmap for independence and this notion that this could be achieved within 18 months, uh, what, what ought to happen according to this roadmap uh, as the next few steps? Well, once the pro-independence parties have sort of agreed amongst themselves um, on a, a new government and, and a leader, uh, the next step would be to make um, a statement of intent um, that they will push ahead with the uh, the roadmap. Um, so that in itself doesn't necessarily mean much in practical terms, but it's a symbolic statement that the ball is rolling. And then after that, they start to create, or they would start to create, the machinery of state for, for a new uh, Catalan independent 
uh, nation. Um, so whether it's the laws or the institutions of state, um, the, the embassies and so on, the international contacts, all of those sort of technical issues would start to be um, created and w- would be underway um, after that initial statement of intent. Um, and then sometime in early 2017, according to this roadmap, there would be another election to elect what would effectively be the first uh, government of an independent Catalan state. Um, and then by then, essentially, the, the process would be complete. Um, that, at least, is the theory. Whether it can go ahead or not is another matter. We shall wait and see. Guy Hedgeco and Patrick Smith, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.